By now, most of us are familiar with the standard story about addiction. A person takes it too far with a drink, drug, or some other activity and finds themselves at the receiving end of an intervention. After shipping away to rehab or spending a sufficient amount of time in meetings, identifying themselves as an alcoholic or addict, the person then comes to realize the exact nature of their problem. They then spend the rest of their days speaking in front of crowds and telling the world that this is the best way to recover. In many instances, whether through subtle or not so subtle messages, the media has trained us to believe that the best and only path to recovering from an addiction is to follow these methods. But what if that just isn't the case? What if the average person who recovers doesn't even follow these methods? That's exactly what this show is designed to explore. You'll be hearing stories from people who followed a non-traditional path to recovery, but who we believe represent the silent majority of people who get over addictions. We hope you enjoy the show and that it gets you thinking about things a little differently. It is with great pleasure, then, that we welcome you to Sundays with Stories. Welcome to Sundays with Stories. I'm Zach Rhodes. I'm here with Dr. Stanton Peel. Stanton, thank you for joining me once again. It's my pleasure, and uh, we're going to cover a lot of interesting territory today. Yeah, well, we're going to start with, uh, I want to break this into a few different bite-sized segments before we get to an interview that we'll do just a little bit later. Um, let's talk current events, because that's something that people have been interested in and talked about. You know, if I'm going to watch something every Sunday, wouldn't it be interesting if you could incorporate a hot take, especially Dr. Peel's hot takes on certain current events? So I have one up my sleeve, and I know that you have an article that you are interested in sharing and sharing a perspective on. So why don't you launch into it? Well, this is a New York Times article uh, dated October 27th called, This Addiction Treatment Works, Why Is It So Underused?, an approach called contingency management rewards drug users with money and prizes for staying abstinent, but few programs offer it. It actually then branches into something <clears throat> that is a frequent topic, which has been done before, um, which our colleagues like Maya Salovitz are enamored of. Um, why don't we use MAT, medication-assisted treatment, which they make the same claims for. And in fact, in this article, they start out with contingent reinforcement and then they go into MAT. So let's start out with contingent reinforcement. That means reward and punishment. Yeah. And um, I, ha I have to give a little deep background here. Um, <clears throat> the idea of, I I'm, I'm for this line of research and I've worked closely with one man who did it at the University of Vermont, Rich de Grand Prix. Um, the, the image that's proposed for addiction is total loss of control. It's and the, and the modern mm. medical version is it biologically takes over your brain, loss of free will. That's Norovocal's old line. Um, and there's a famous study where a man named Wise supposedly got animals to, rats to stimulate their brain in a place that cocaine goes and they did it until they died. So that's the, that science reinforces the popular myth of AA 
that people have no control. In fact, there's a giant body of research. Carl Hart is part of that tradition. He calls himself a research neuroscientist. It, he's a psychologist originally. It used to be called uh, behavioral psychopharmacology. And what they did, and uh, we've talked about, um, everybody knows about Rat Park, we'll bring it up again, but we've talked about when I went to the animal laboratories at Michigan, where they had um, injection mechanisms harnessed to people, to monkeys' backs, and they press a certain amount of times to get heroin or any other drug. <clears throat> now, that image of like, well, they'll just keep pressing is the image we have of addiction. But there's an entire body of literature which does this. They change the contingency rewards, how many times you have to press the lever, and then they have competing rewards. And then the question is, well, will they take something else instead of the drug? And of course, Rat Park is a study of contingency, naturally occurring contingency rewards. I'll get back to that. But in a typical study, they'll compare after an animal, a monkey or an, uh, any other animal becomes habituated to say a cocaine solution, what if you give them sugar water? Will they take that instead? And the answer to that question is, well, it depends how much sugar you put in the water. And at some point, they'll take more sugar water than cocaine, which is an entirely different image of drug taking. Mm. It's one possible reinforcer. Um, now, this research is done with both animals and with humans. And in the field of alcoholism, the Boston City Hospital Group, which I lectured in front of once, which is associated with Johns Hopkins, would take street inebriates and they'd give them choices of drinking under different conditions. And for example, they would say, you can leave a warm, comfortable room watching television and drink as much as you want. And they would drink less because they sort of enjoyed hanging around with the other guys watching television, which is all, huh, I thought they couldn't control their alcoholism. In another experiment, they gave them chips and they could do a puzzle or work a puzzle to get enough chips to drink. They didn't drink every time they got a chip. They saved up enough chips to reach a certain level of intoxication, which they preferred. And so a summary of this literature with that great man Nick Heather in England did in controlled drinking was, there's not an internal uncontrollable urge to drink in people who are labeled alcoholics. They have contingencies, they follow environmental rewards. And at the same time, they're goal oriented. The only thing is their goal is different than our goal normally to get to a certain level of intoxication. And so what in, at, uh, in the University of Vermont, a man named Bickle and, another, and other researchers found that if you offered people a certain amount of money, instead of taking cocaine, they wouldn't take cocaine. And the money actually wasn't that great. And Carl Hart's main research follows that model. He gave people, meth users, a certain amount of money not to take meth. Now, uh, and it wasn't that large an amount of money. And you might say, well, they're saving it up to get a lot of meth, okay. 
But in the cocaine studies, initially, they said, we'll test you if you don't take cocaine, we'll give you a certain amount of money a week. And what's your reaction to that model, Zach? How do you feel about that? My, um, well, so which part? The contingencies in general? Well, just giving people money not to take cocaine. Um, my reaction is it, it would make sense that people would take money instead of cocaine a lot of the time. My concerns with contingencies with just pure carrots and sticks is that it can be one-dimensional. It's not taking into account everything that might lead someone toward one goal or another. It's, it's sort of doing something like you do in a lab in science, useful, but you know, you take things and you study them in a lab in science just so you can cancel out all that noise, which you've just assumed is not, you know, nonsense and doesn't matter for your study. And then you, it doesn't apply to the real world all the time. So I, that would be my holdup with anything like this. Not that it two, couldn't apply. The two things, exactly right. Uh, it's really useful and important information. It tells us that there's no internal drive that you can manipulate right. a people's Sig reaction. Signifies agency, yeah. And we, we reject that kind of alcoholism research anymore. The idea of using people, controlling their lives like guinea pigs. Um, and the other thing, obviously, the problem with rewarding people not to take cocaine is, well, how long is that experiment going to go on? Yeah. A month, two months? Yeah. Then what happens? And we actually know the answer to that question. Um, and I'll read you the answer to that question. Uh, there's a very famous group at Harvard called the Global Control of Tobacco. And they did a study where the most important for a very long time, decades, method for controlling tobacco use was nicotine reinforcement replacement by pill or patch. <clears throat> and they studied men who quit smoking with or without nicotine replacement therapy, NRT. They found no difference over 18 months and three years in how but how likely they were to continue smoking. And one subgroup, heavy smokers who use replacement products, was twice as likely to relapse as heavy smokers who did not use them. Can you imagine, before we go on, why, why would that be? The, most, the heaviest, most addicted smokers who you would think would be most susceptible to nicotine replacement therapy were the most likely to relapse versus, guys, who are heavily dependent, who quit smoking on their own. Could you run that through in your mind and think why that would be? The most simple way that I could put it is that they learned to rely on the replacement. And then what always happens is just in the same way they stop giving you money not to take cocaine, well, some one morning they run out of um, nicotine replacement. This is something that our friends at the uh, uh, the Freedom Model Retreat, Stephen Slade and and all of them, will say, you know, here's a real problem because not only are you starting to rely on something new, but you're forming a story in your mind that you can't possibly get by without something to rely on. And that's really crucial, and I, we commend them for that. So the researchers are the head of Harvard's Global Center for Tobacco Control. Pretty authentic sounding things. This gets back to what you originally said. 
one of the guys, uh, Dr. Gregory Connolly, is the director of the study, said, we were really sorry to see this result because we've invested millions in nicotine replacement therapy. And another co-author of the study, Hillel Alpert, uh, said, our study shows that what happens in the real world is very different from what happens in clinical trials. And what you and I would say, I think, in terms of contingency rewards, what we believe in and what we teach through the Life Process Program is for people to control their own contingencies. And the answer to the question, why don't I smoke for a person who quits on his own versus NRT is, well, I decided I didn't want to smoke. I wanted to feel healthier. I wanted my wife or husband to stop complaining or my child to love me, whatever reasons people have. I wanted to be healthy. Those are real reasons in their lives. And those reasons are more persistent. You know why you're doing it. Your motivation's better. And those contingencies are real. And they're really in place. So let me... That's what, and what we do in a life process program is to encourage people to develop real and discover in their family, their spouses, their partners, their children, their friends, their communities, their purpose, their values, their health, real reasons for quitting something or modifying their behavior. So this brings me to my favorite all time behavioral pharmacology studies. Uh, the, one of the earliest directors of the NIDA uh, was a man named Charles Schuster, who for some reason everybody called him Bob, and his wife, Chris Johansson, who's, Bob has died, and Chris Johansson is still at the University of Chicago. They are behavioral pharmacologists or psychopharmacologists. They were very good to me. Um, they're some of my mainstream connections. And Chris Johansson did the greatest psychopharmacology, behavioral pharmacology study, except the results didn't really come out from the study. The study was they gave de-amphetamines to students at the University of Chicago and young employees, mainly students, and they measured how they reacted to them and what their willingness was to consume them. And amphetamines, I don't want to suggest any bad habits to anybody watching this. People like amphetamines. Amphetamines raise people's spirits. You know, not everybody enjoys narcotics. Pretty much everybody enjoys speed. <laughs> and so when they measured people's response to the amphetamines, the students and young employees said, I really like this. I really like the spirit. The, it imbues in me. <clears throat> and as these studies went on, they became less willing to take them. Now, they, these people are reinforcement people. So their logic was, Chris Johansson and Ulanoff is the co-author. Well, they like the drug's effects. Why do they take less of them? All right, Zach, why do they take less of them? Because they like the drug's effects when the drug's effects are enjoyable. 
Is that what you that's, mean? Is that that's what you're why at? people take more? That's why they should be more willing. Mm. Every time they came to the laboratory, they became less willing to take the drug. I guess what I'm trying to say, as a person who enjoys amphetamines uh, in a perfectly reasonable way, I would say, I I have a life to live. You know, just like when you ask people, uh, did you keep taking your painkillers and become addicted to them after your surgeries? No. And why? The most common answer is I had shit to do. You know, I had a family. I've got things to do. The, the, the drug's enjoyable when there's a context to enjoy it in. A hundred percent right. So Johansson and Ula did a study, a behavioral study, where human subjects, young at the University of Chicago, enjoyed amphetamines and became less and less willing to take them. And so they had to sort of explain the results other than what actually happened in the experiment. They said, the students would say, well, I have other things to do. You know, I'm trying to graduate, for God's sake, the University of Chicago is like, you know, Harvard and Stanford. They wanted to go wherever, medical school or politics. And, this, and the, the young employees were similarly ambitious and the drug interfered with their ability to proceed with their regular lives. So that's exactly what we're talking about in the context of it's reinforcing, okay, but who controls those reinforcements? And for people who control the reinforcements in their lives and who have other options, and we get back to the Rat Park study, even rats, who become habituated to morphine solution, if you give them enough to do, forgive my language in this high level conversation, screwing other rats running around in sawdust and going on those rat furrows wheels, they'll stop taking the morphine, they'll just mm -hmm. take water because that allows them to do that, those other groovy rat things. And so we, in the Life Process Program, we're encouraging people to do those other things. And that's our solution because like in the global tobacco study, it's more enduring. And uh, like the problem with giving people money not to take cocaine is, well, you got to get reinforcement in the natural world because, you know, at some point they're going to stop pay paying you not to take cocaine. You know, the guys who are doing the study are going to retire or something's going to happen. And then what happens is they're more likely to relapse because they don't feel they have internal control. Right. Let's move on to medication-assisted therapy, which remember, we're talking about an article that just appeared in the New York Times. Um, I'll just repeat the title of it. This addiction treatment works. Why is it so underused? They've had more than one article about that where they interview Maya and other people and they say, well, medication-assisted <laughs> treatment in, in small studies, if you take supervised suboxone or buprenorphine or methadone, you don't die because you're not getting street crap. It's, 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 it's like heroin maintenance, except it's not heroin, it's drug maintenance. And what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, there's two possibilities. Um, one, you'll stop taking the replacement drug. Then what happens? And two, you'll choose not to take the replacement drug. One day you'll get up and say, you know what? I'd just like to take the fentanyl or the heroin or the straight up. And then you're a goner because you've totally eradicated the whole basis for the treatment. 
And so what explains the fact clinical trials, limited community trials show that giving people suboxone and buprenorphine and morphine and methadone makes them less likely to die because they're not taking crappy street drugs. And they have if anyone drugs. likes to regurgitate the 50 to 70% number that you hear all the time, that's in clinical trials. It's true. You know, we won't, wouldn't push and back on that. And then the question that. becomes, well, how does that actually work for human beings in the world? And we're faced with the fact um, MAT is now government approved. It's no longer a crazy common, this radical, well, first of all, we should say um, naloxone, a reversal drug, as you carry it, it's, uh, that just instantly is an antagonist to narcotics. Mm. Um, naltrexone is a prescribed uh, long-term and uh, uh, opposition to narcotics. And other drugs like suboxone and buprenorphine are, and methadone are replacements or combinations of replacement and antagonists. And then the question becomes, in a longer term study, how well do these things work? And these drugs are now being used throughout the United States. They're encouraged by the government. And as we talked about last week, and as we'll always say, we're in a drug death hurricane. Um, drug deaths have uh, pyramided since the turn of the century. And there was a tick back in 2018 of 4.6%. And people said, hallelujah. However, in 17 states, deaths increased. And in, in many of those states, like Missouri, they were actively promoting um, MAT. And then in 2019, drug deaths reached a new peak. And now in 2020, we have the pandemic and drug deaths have really gone haywire. We haven't got the final figures. 2020 isn't over. And so as I reported the last time, uh, Maya led a group, the DPA uh, experts saying, we've got to do more MAT because of this hurricane of drug deaths, which is accelerating even more. We're back in the disease myths talk about rats on those ferris wheels we've got a theory about what keeps people from using drugs or dying from drug use let look we've got in this limited cage it works unfortunately when people get out of that cage they do all kinds of crazy stuff and more and more of them are dying We've got to do more and more of what we did in the cage. I mean, piece together the argument someone like Maya would put forward the best that I can, and she could come on and correct me if she's if I'm wrong. But and then we could see where it goes wrong. You're as you're saying in clinical trial and clinical studies, you can give people a replacement drug, and they seem to be perfectly fine with that. Like I was doing heroin, methadone is kind of a proxy for it, and this is better. People die less often when they're taking it. Okay, but when it comes to, and, and so also Maya, like us, is a pretty progressive person. You know, she's, compassion is something that, that is a priority for her. So there's sort of an argument that people deserve to be able to take a replacement drug if that's what they want to do. Okay, so we could agree with that. You add, rather than giving people a drug, it's not the same thing. When we talk about MAT, it's not the same thing as saying, wherever you are in your community, if you want to access these new different drugs you can 
And it's certainly not the same thing as saying, we understand that you're using all kinds of drugs. If you want to use them, here's a clean supply of it, because that's not really what it is. Also, it's adding extra elements that, uh, that weren't already present in a person's life. And these new elements are, are tedium, like they're chores rather than natural life. Like you have to come in for an appointment or you have to travel. Um, and then you need a prescription, right? And you need a, You need a prescription and certain doctor's orders. You also have to keep in touch to explain how your treatment is going. And then like you explain with uh, nicotine therapies and things like that, there's also this idea that you can't survive without this crutch. Like no one, there's no one saying, you know, if you tell your doctor, you know, I've decided I'm going to miss my dose today. They don't say, <clears throat> okay, or, or what, what are you going to do? They say, well, what's going on? This is not the way you're supposed to take these drugs. And, and you're supposed you're to be often, committed. very, the most often way, the most frequent way people end up taking Suboxone is they're forced to take it by the criminal justice system. So, yeah, and, yeah. and DPA has the, strange bending over backwards obligation of saying we love MAT, we're against coercion. Um, and most people take Suboxone because they're coerced to. The very famous case that I often discuss that Ethan and DPA is still pissed off at me about, um, they, the Massachusetts Supreme Court considered a case about a woman um, who relapsed while she was on probation for theft and they put her in prison for a week. Mm. But what people don't know was she relapsed to fentanyl while she was on Suboxone. She was already on MAT and she was on it in a court ordered way. And then what can you say about people? One day she said, I just want to take my drug of preference, fentanyl. Who knew? And of course they'll say, <laughs> oh, she wasn't getting enough subox. You know, they'll like, they start tinkering, you know, with the levers. They say, well, we needed to give her more suboxone. So in a, in a primary case that was used initially, and I did a video with you uh, attacking the logic that she should have been forced. She shouldn't have been put in prison for taking drugs. She, she was actually put in prison for theft because she was on probation. Mm. But um, have forcing her then, after she's in prison, to take Suboxone is a violation of what we care about. It's a violation of, ironically, what DPA says they care about. And it's ineffective as proved by her. She was court ordered on Suboxone when she violated her probation took fentanyl and went to prison. The whole elaborate, it's a house of cards that's built on the idea that we can force people to modify their behavior by reward and punishment that we control or by providing drugs that either block the effects of a drug or that substitute that we control. And that's the answer to addiction. It's not the answer to addiction. What you and I and the Life Process Program are about are enabling people to create a life fulfilling enough and that the world allow people enough opportunities to fulfill themselves that they'll escape the desire, the urge, the need to take drugs because of that. 
And the less able we are to do that, the more people will end up dying from drugs or being addicted to drugs. And we're not headed in a good direction right now. We weren't headed in a good direction before the pandemic and the pandemic has made it worse. So we're offering a real alternative, a hard alternative, but a real alternative. Um, and that's why we say things that in some regard, uh, people would say, well, Zach and Stan aren't scientific. Uh, don't they know that MAT is clinically effective? And, and that's our answer to that. That we're going to turn it over to another news item for you right now. But in some future podcast, um, I want to talk about there was an experiment where people took opioids and cocaine freely. Every doctor had them in their black satchel. Um, you could buy them on the street. And that experiment was called. 19th century America and Britain. <laughs> and people write books, and I'll review one of those books, to say, can you believe those maniacs? They just had opioids and cocaine around, and doctors just gave them to people. And thank God we discovered that they were addictive and you can't control those drugs. So we've reached the halcyon period we have now where we have maniacally, asymptotically accelerating drug deaths where people have lost completely the concept and the ability to say, well, there are drugs. Um, I may or may not want to take them for this or that purpose, for pain relief, for stimulation, but I can't because I'll be addicted. And the most progressive elements in our society are the ones who pass along that message. So we'll, we'll review the history of the world uh, at a future time. And now you wanted to mention, uh, you wanted to move along to smart right now. Yeah, and it's actually a nice segue. First, isn't it interesting, the, the horseshoe effect of, uh, I, this is a shout out to a friend of mine. His name is Dr. Rick Barnett. He's a, a clinical psychologist in Stowe, Vermont. And he's, uh, you know, he's a pro AA guy. And he and I call him my intellectual arch nemesis because he'll have this conversation like you and I are having and take it the distance except just kind of has AA in his pocket. Like, I don't really want to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, invitation for him to come on and, and dispute that. But at the same time, he will make the very same point with the same logic about MAT. You know, he sees people come in his office and they're told court ordered, you can either go to jail or you can get a Vivitrol shot in your ass for, you know, or you can take methadone or Suboxone and they don't want to do those things. So I'd, I'd like to bring him on because he's a person that doesn't, isn't quite seen maybe because it's just not uh maybe it's a selection bias he's not quite seen the same thing happening with aa even though that is that same court coercion is pretty ubiquitous with AA. and the same you can't control it yourself forget it but you don't even right. try so the answer to that article's headline is we are doing both of those things we are we are exercising uh contingencies all the time by arresting people and letting them out and arresting them again. And we're, we are really, I mean, MAT, MAT is, is everywhere. Become, MAT is everywhere now and it's government approved. Uh, you, you can't say, oh, stupid government. They're not using this effective therapy. They are. And drug reformers are now on board with the government policy while more and more people die. And someday the, 
borrow Ethan Adelman's uh, words, they're going to have to answer to that. Just Ethan Adelman's the one who said, uh, when Clean Needles came along throughout the 1990s, we talked about it with Governor Christine Whitman, but the main opponent to it was abstinence people like AA. Yeah. And uh, our good friend, Will Godfrey, interviewed Ethan for what he was then working for The Fix. And Ethan said, the AA and 12-step people are going to have to answer sometime in the future for the hundreds of thousands of people who died uh, due to HIV infections uh, because they were completely against anything that violated absence. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that our current MAT medicalization of addiction will get them better by forcing them to take a medication um, is going to have to have that same answer. And so our answer to that article's headline is, okay, we don't actually use those things, except we build in contingencies for people to use on their own. Make your own contingencies, make your own goals. Uh, we don't use MAT for the reasons you've explained. And I talked to Tom Horvath, someone that you and I put out a piece about, and we did sort of some podcasting, some article writing. And we talked about why smart recovery, which is a, uh, he doesn't call it a support group, but I think he calls it a mutual aid group, is not really like the life process program. People compare them all the time. And the article was saying, it's kind of apples and oranges. We're in the same ballpark, but, you know, the life process program is a program that people pay for. They pay for coaching and cognitive behavioral therapy, individualization of their plan. And Tom said, you struck the right tone with that piece. It's He totally agrees, except he wanted to add something, which I think is good news, that SMART, in its uh, slowly as they want to move, have now incorporated a, a sort of a non-abstinence clause, I guess it was tacitly, into their programming. So instead of what it used to be, like where people are meeting and we're going to talk about how to stop using drugs, it's people- Or alcohol. In, or, or alcohol. Um, or, or actually, they've expanded it, it recently, so it's anything, you know, any problematic sort of behavior. They did make the leap to saying, well, you know, abstinence is sort of a weird goal for some of those other things, and maybe it's sort of a weird goal for drugs and alcohol, too. So instead of abstinence or stopping using drugs, we're going to help people to stop their cycles of behavior, problematic, you know, problematic cycles of behavior, whatever that means to them. So people come in and set goals themselves. Still, there's a difference, the distinction that he and I talked about and people can see on the, uh, on the interview that I'll put up soon, but you know, he'll, he admits SMART is just, it's a group. So it's not like the life process program where we're focused forward and saying, look at new horizons, find your purpose in life and go. But, you know, by saying, there's a, obviously some sort of a problem in giving people the strategies and tools to be able to attack that, whatever they, however they define it, not just saying you have to stop using drugs or whatever behavior is a huge step forward and something that I was happy to talk with them about. Smart, I mean, in a way, smart's a modern miracle. I mean, Tom didn't start it. He's the first one to say he wasn't the first director, but he navigated it for decades. Yeah. He made it a competitor for AA, and God bless it. Yeah. Every mostly every court in the United States sort of knows now. If you get a DUI, they can't say, "Oh, buddy, go to the twelve steps." And you say, "You know, I'm not comfortable in AA." Everybody sort of knows. Well, there are other groups 
um, and one of, one of our colleagues at LPP, who you interviewed, Deke Cloward, is, is a person who's spread that word around to many courts. But everybody kind of knows it now. And that's great. But for whatever reasons, because they're competing with AA, because people who come into groups have a certain expectation, although Tom personally himself in his own work in practical recovery never was totally abstinence-oriented, yeah. the group felt it had to be abstinence-oriented. Right. And, and then you went through that a little with Dee Cloward as well with, when you talk with her. Um, it's not for me to judge how to run a major organization that competes with AA, which has been around since the 30s and which is the heart of America. You know, somebody who makes something like that work, just the same way Ethan Nadelman made DPA work, you know, I can't kibitz how they've done it. But they did get themselves back into that corner of abstinence. And now they have to expand beyond it. I doubt. Do you think AA will ever get beyond abstinence, uh, Zach? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, whenever they do, there will be some new obvious 21st, 22nd century normality that they just can't contend with because of their dogma. So, you know, Sex Addicts Anonymous and Food and whatever, Overeaters Anonymous did what you said with SMART. They said, well, we don't define abstaining from food or sex or relationships, but just from being addicted to them, right. which is sort of harm reduction. Right. So, you know, the world is moving on and it's hard for even people in AA not to know about harm reduction and um, motivational interviewing, which is also what you're describing with SMART. People have to define their own goals, which of course is what we do at LPP. So you and I have been looking at how the world turns, developments in the world of addiction, um, uh, I just want to advertise for ourselves. We should maybe put this at the front of this whole operation. You and I cover a lot of territory. Um, I'm, I'm about twice your age. Um, you've had some practical experience with having a heroin monkey on your back. You work daily helping people, starting with young people, but as a coach with Life Process Program. I've been around forever, understanding addiction, formulating theories of addiction, helping people, and created the Life Process Program. And we're both free thinkers. Neither of us came in here thinking um, that we're powerless, that God told us we were addicted, that our brains make us forever addicted. We're dealing with the, the ongoing cascading changes that we're seeing in front of us. There's a lot of bad results, but there's just been an opening of the American mind as represented by the people we mentioned, Maya Salovitz and Mark Lewis and DPA, to put things on the table and say, well, what are we really talking about? Uh, what are, and smart changing, what really is effective? Uh, how do people really come to grips with problems? And, you know, I like to say that this little podcast of ours is there's no place that you'll observe more free thinking, more forward thinking based on long experience and covering the whole dock side, the whole shoreline of different experiences and approaches to dealing with and experiencing addiction and between you and me, Zach. It's a good stopping point. And um, 
make sure people uh, just a reminder for people to subscribe to the YouTube channel. We've seen an uptick of that recently. People are engaging. So I think people agree with you. Maybe we don't even have to put that out front because I think people are noticing that the conversations that we're having are conversations you don't get many other places, especially people working in the, in the field. And so that will lead very nicely into what people will see next, which is an interview with our colleague and someone who has a very interesting personal story. People have said, you know, that our celebrity stories make a lot of sense. It's good that you can kind of track their stories. Everyone's looking at the same story. Then again, the questions that we're trying to ask about people, human beings, can seem tangential if we're not actually talking to a human being. So our first here that people will see is our colleague, Aaron Ferguson. So stay tuned. Look forward to it. Bye-bye, Zach.